You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm. On today's Science of Storytelling episode, I'm chatting with Mikal Shapira. Mikal is the Senior Vice President, News Content Partnerships, Warner Media Ad Sales, and Head of Courageous Studios. We're going to talk about being part of the boom and bust of the internet bubble, the shocking lack of statues of women in New York City, and whether or not the Rocky movies still hold up for today's younger generation. If you like this episode, please leave us a comment and let me know what you think. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss a single episode. Now, please enjoy the show. Mikhail, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have you here. You are the Senior Vice President, News Content Partnerships, Warner Media, Ad Sales, and Head of Courageous Studios. Correct. It's a mouthful. It's a really long title. Correct. So let's break it down first into its parts. Let's start with let's start with Warner Media. Okay. It's a great place to start. What is Warner Media? <laughs> what is it? Good question. Uh, so you know, we I came on board about five years ago now uh, when it was Turner. And I worked on the news side. I still do. So CNN, HLN, great big story, um, digital, linear, all platforms. Uh, and the other properties within Turner uh, were TBS, TNT, Cartoon Network, et cetera. Uh, and then Warner Media, AT&T bought us, Warner Media came about, and now we are an even bigger company, uh, bringing in HBO, Warner Brothers, uh, and obviously the power of AT&T. Yeah, it's impressive. And that's, I don't think people realize when they hear Warner Media, that there's these massive brands underneath. HBO itself mm-hmm. is just an enormous brand. CNN mm-hmm. is an enormous brand on its own. And they all live under this banner of, of Warner Media. Correct. Yeah. The former Time Warner as well, I should say. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And what is courageous? Ah, so about four and a half years ago, uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, about six months into my job or so, uh, I created a business plan to launch the first in-house brand studio for CNN. Uh, and uh, it's kind of uh, amazing that one didn't exist already. I had come from, you know, my previous life, uh, headed up uh, a couple of different brand studios, so I kind of had experience in doing something like this, and I felt that it was really important that we build one uh, at CNN. There was a sort of untapped potential uh, that we uh, currently weren't weren't taking advantage of, and so uh, I put forward a business plan to do that. Now, in the past, uh, we where I had been at other companies where we wanted to do that, and what we did was rebrand an existing entity. So we took a department that was maybe creative services, that was maybe integrated marketing, that was more traditional in nature, uh, and rebranded it, the studio, to just put a shingle up uh, to the marketplace and say, we're in business. Uh, that is not what we did here. We actually put together an entire business plan uh, to build this from scratch. And uh, I think it's one of the main reasons for the success that we have had. Uh, So we decided to, we were late to the game, uh, admittedly. And there were other brand studios all around us in the space that were already having tremendous success. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, where I came from. 
uh, and, and others. And so we knew that uh, if we were going to launch this, it was going to have to be uh, something really special. We were going to have to come out with a very unique and specific point of view. We couldn't just announce to the world that, again, we are in business and we can just be everything to everyone and we can do whatever you want us to do because I personally felt that that was going to get lost in the noise uh, and in the crowded space that it already was. So we very deliberately, I hired Otto Bell, who is my chief creative officer, and together we very deliberately set it up to specialize in video we set it up, um, you know, to be more documentary style, uh, to have global reach. And that was very much in the DNA of CNN already. Uh, and so, you know, we basically set it up from the get-go in a way that we felt was uh, a white space that nobody else was occupying, uh, that we felt we could do really well. Otto himself is a director and um, had actually had a film uh, a documentary film that was uh, nominated for a BAFTA and uh, was really successful um, from a documentary standpoint. It was called The Eagle Huntress. So he had that very specific experience. And together, we built it from scratch. We hired people who specialized uh, in this area. Uh, and we built the infrastructure, uh, the org, the roles and responsibilities, uh, the space we actually rented a totally different space than um, you know where the rest of the company was. We were at the Time Warner Center, and we rented a totally different space downtown um, with equipment, with everything that we needed to have that creative environment uh, that we felt was necessary to launch something like this. And then we hired everybody one by one by one uh, and built it up that way. That's a big undertaking because you're you're creating a new company inside of a company. You're starting with new job descriptions that maybe haven't existed in that company before. But you're quite right that most often, and not all the time, but most often the studios uh, were rebranded for the market. So, That's right. hey, we're supposed to have branded content. It seems like a big thing. What if we call this area, you know, our new branded content exactly. studio? And they started popping up one after another. And it's interesting coming in maybe more as the late majority rather than the early adopter. Uh, I like that. I actually, so I've always seen myself as an early adopter. I thought that that was cool. I always wanted to be the early adopter in things. And then I, I look back and I realize that my dad was an early adopter and it didn't always work out in the same, like we had laser discs. Do you hmm. remember laser discs? Yes, I do. Uh, I remember even vinyl records. I remember DVDs. I remember, <laughs> yeah. Well, my dad was the one that got the... Cassette tapes. My dad would jump on the one, but it was never the one that became the majority. He was like the beta, mm -hmm. the laser disc, like all of the things that never got fully adopted. So we had Intellivision instead of Atari. Oh, that's so, so we funny. had all of these things that, you know, you couldn't share with your friends or trade with your friends mm -hmm. or anything. Uh, and I've always, I've, I've started to really appreciate the entry of this early majority mm -hmm. time where, where there's been some experience in the space. It sounds like you had experience directly in these studios and you saw what worked and what didn't work and decided, hey, let's start from ground zero and let's, let's build something that's purpose, it's intentional, uh, and it's going to fulfill not only what's needed today, but moving forward. 
It's an interesting approach. Yeah, and the only other thing I would add is that I was working at a company that believed in me, believed in this project, um, invested in it in a really big way, uh, gave me the autonomy to bring it to life in the way that I thought would be best. Uh, and had I not had that, I really think that it wouldn't have worked. So uh, I feel very grateful, very fortunate that, um, you know, I had that support. Uh, and I think that it was a huge uh, reason we, again, we are what we are. Yeah. And some of those experiences that led you to that point where, you know, you would have this full support of the corporation to be able to go and build this out. I want to back up to some of your early experiences. Sure. Uh, no one has a very you know, straight and narrow path to these careers as heading up branded content studios and in the media business in general. I want to talk about one of your earlier roles at iVillage. Sure. So first, let's remind everybody, so what year are we? 1999. The internet is booming. It's it's still new and fresh, but, and there's money flowing into it. The economy is flying. And iVillage launches, and what is iVillage? So iVillage was a women's website. It was targeted specifically at moms, um, you know, women, I think 25 to 54 in that range. Um, It started as almost like a series of blogs, uh, recipes, parenting, things like that, lifestyle, fashion. Uh, And uh, when I started there, if I can just back up even a little bit more, I I started there right out of business school. So I had gone to get my MBA because I did not major in business in undergraduate. And I felt that I wanted that um, degree uh, and I wanted to, uh, you know, go and study that in a real way. So I spent two years at Emory University. I got my MBA there at the Guizueta Business School. And um, when I graduated, uh, there were a lot of companies that were recruiting out of my program, a lot of really, really great you know, Fortune 50, Fortune 500 companies. And the traditional path for someone who majored in marketing like myself as opposed to finance or anything else, um, the traditional path was really to go work either at a consulting company or a CPG company, for example, being a brand manager um, or... Um, other types of more sort of traditional marketing roles. And none of them really interested me at the time. Uh, They were great companies. They paid a lot of money. Um, All my classmates took those jobs and, you know, are very happy today. But it wasn't something that uh, I was entirely interested in. I don't know that I could put my finger on why, you know. And I would go on these interviews and um, it just, I would leave there and, and just wanting more. And I realized I had started a entertainment and media club at school. It didn't exist before. And I started it. And um, ironically, Turner was in Atlanta, so was my school. So uh, a lot of the speakers actually were from Turner. Um, And so, you know, thinking back, I think that I started to get kind of excited about media. It was the early days of the Internet. Um, and I got really excited about this new world that's out there from a marketing standpoint. And so I decided to just, I don't know, go meet some people. And through the school's network, I came to New York and I, um, you know, went and had drinks with some people, um, 
they were very gracious with their time, which is, by the way, something I try to pay back in a really big way now that I am where I am. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I landed uh, at an interview at iVillage, and I didn't know anything about it before, uh, but it was really interesting to me. So uh, fast forward, I got the job, and uh, I was director of brand marketing there, but it was really, really early days. And so it was just so interesting to be in that kind of um, environment at that time. I wore a lot of different hats. Uh, I did uh, things like uh, sweepstakes to, uh, you know, as an acquisition mechanism to try and get, um, you know, more of an audience for different aspects of, of our sites. Um, we were launching new things. It was a really, really fun time. Um, and again, it was just a totally non-traditional job. It probably paid half of what, you know, my other classmates were, were getting paid at these other jobs that they had taken, uh, but I didn't care. And uh, for me, I was passionate about it. I was really interested in it. I wanted to learn. I felt that I was doing something that was on the cutting edge. Uh, I felt that it was kind of chaotic, but in a really fun way where, you know, nobody had the answers. And so that's okay. You know, you just kept trying different things and, um, and everyone was kind of holding hands through it all and doing the same thing. So um, for me, that was a really fun way to start my career in this business. Yeah, and a really interesting place. Uh, at that time, there was a few internet companies that were just exploding and iVillage was one of yeah, them. Yeah, for I sure. Went public. Valued right. at $2 billion at one point, and then the crash happens. That's right. And it goes from, like, loses, like, 99% of its value in a year, uh, which other companies did, too, at that time. But it was these, it was a rocket ship, and then it just turns around. What did it feel like to have that kind of chaos and energy and looking back, it's it's easy in hindsight to say, okay, well, this happened this year. But when you're in it, mm -hmm. you don't know what the other side of this looks like. What did it feel like inside that company? Well, you know what? I have to say I was young enough to understand it but not understand it, you know, to care but not care, to know that my career is still, you know, so far ahead of me that I kind of took it for what it was, you know, and I and that's kind of how I've been all my life anyway. So, uh I didn't have any expectations really, you know, and uh, I did learn so much and I feel like so fortunate to have been part of, of what it was in the heyday. And even when it wasn't, it was still going, like we were still churning out really great content and uh, we still had a massive audience. It was almost like this bubble was happening around us, right? So um, sure, I felt some of those, uh, you know, repercussions, but in general, I knew that I was, I was learning something new and interesting and I was going to take it somewhere. And uh, I definitely didn't feel like uh, any regrets or, you know, like I, uh, I didn't, you know, do the right thing there. Yeah. Well, and I imagine there's two different things going on at that time. You have the site and the audience of the site, which is growing and, uh, you know, there's great content on there and people are interacting with it. And then there's this you know, stock market and investment stuff that's happening. And it isn't directly tied. I mean, its growth wasn't directly tied and its fall wasn't directly tied to what's going on on these sites with audience. That's right. It'd be a really interesting time to be 
to be in there. And I imagine that they had to figure out more sustainable business models. And, you know, rather than hiring 100 people a week, now they're looking at, okay, are these the right people for the team? I doubt there's many places you could have been where in three or four years you Mm -hmm. could learn that growth and then that idea of a sustainable business at the same time. That's absolutely true. And imagine I went to AOL after that. Yeah. So that was, you know, yet another really interesting company going through a lot. Uh, I was there for, I don't know, maybe five years, something like that. and, and so much changed while I was there. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've lived through a lot yeah. uh, in the digital world, you know, and, uh, and I feel really fortunate that I got to do that. Yeah. You also uh, got to spend some time around the launch of the iPad, which was another one of those moments, those big milestone moments that you can remember when it launched. And especially if you were in the publishing industry, there was the idea that this will change everything and big moves were being made around it. So talk about your experience within that time. So that was truly exciting for me because technology, innovation, uh, that has always been something that really interested me and has been the underpinning, frankly, of, of you know, all the, the jobs that I've had uh, behind the scenes uh, of the marketing roles that I've occupied. So uh, when the iPad first came out, uh, iPad 1, I mean, this is over a decade ago now, right? Um, before it was even released to the marketplace, publishers uh, were given a glimpse of what it was going to be. And I was lucky enough to be part of a team that was working on, at the time I was a Condé Nast, so I was part of a team that was working on what would our sort of magazine versions look like on this new device. So there was a product team that was working on, it was GQ and Vanity Fair. Those were the two that they were building in-house. And simultaneously, on a parallel path, we were working with a third party in Adobe to build uh, Wired magazine. So there were three. That was kind of the the beginning um, you know, of, of Condé Nast's presence on this device. And is this before the iPad even launches? Correct. Because, because some Condé titles are going to launch with the iPad. Correct. So it's exactly. like this sneak peek. Exactly. Before it's even... Which um, Apple is well known for, you know, not letting anybody know about anything unless they have to. Well, in fact, super secretive, really interesting to be ahead of that curve. So fun, honestly. And uh, I was so I was not part of the product development team. I worked very closely with them because what my role was in partnership with uh, one other person was to come up with what the ad product suite was going to look like. So, you know, while people were trying to figure out what the magazine itself was going to be, I was working hand in hand with them to try and figure out, well, we're going to have to have advertising in there in some way, shape or form. Well, so what, what is that? And, and where do we put it? And, you know, very different layout, very different experience and uh, consumption behavior than anything else we've ever known. So, uh, you know, in terms of coming up with a launch kind of opportunity for anyone that wanted to be part of that, as well as then, you know, the scalable sort of um, ad products that we were going to have uh, once we got up and running. The interesting thing, too, was that Vanity Fair and GQ, again, were being built by an in-house team 
Um, and then uh, the Wired magazine was being built by uh, a third party in Adobe, and they weren't talking to each other. And that was very intentional because they wanted them to uh, build it however which way they thought was best to see what they came up with, and then they would determine which one really was the better product to then basically onboard all the rest of their magazines yeah. onto. So uh, I had to work with both teams and separately and really uh, determine the ad product suite for each of them. So that was a really interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's a bit of a hedge, right? We'll have Wired create this totally. version of it. We'll have another version over here. But the ad product is going to have to live in a similar fashion across both. That's right. Right. Advertising, I find, is often... Uh, the part that needs to scale across all different experiences in some ways. That would be an interesting time for advertising too because up until that point, I mean, there was just banner ads and they were being standardized into the IAB formats at that time. Uh, and now you're coming up with different ad experiences, which probably hadn't really happened on the internet for a while beyond you know your standard display. Standard display, we were doing sort of high impact like... Uh, ads and trying to innovate in different ways that were very disruptive uh, in digital. So at the time, that was the name of the game. How do we get in front of people? How do we capture their attention? And so there was about pop-ups and it was about, you know, these humongous ads that came up the minute you launched a website. Uh, and some of it was good. I don't want to poo-poo it because I really, you know, we had a lot of fun with it. And I think there were a lot of creative executions that are uh, worth revisiting in different ways with different formats now. But it was disruptive. And I think a lot of people found them annoying. And so I think that after a while, we started to, to pivot a little bit and think about, okay, well, how do we get in front of audiences with our message, but in not an annoying way, in a way that they actually may want to consume your advertising. You know, they may want to uh, engage with it on purpose and not just because they, um, they were forced to see it. We'll be back to the episode in just a few seconds, but first we have some exciting news for you. At Pressboard, we love stories, but we know how hard it can be to measure them. So we're here to help, whether it's a sponsored article on a news site, an Instagram post from an influencer, or a video on YouTube, our tech measures it all. Pressboard is already trusted by Spotify, Intel, NBC Universal, Hearst, and thousands more. And here's the big news. Listeners of the podcast can try out the Pressboard platform for free. Just email info at pressboardmedia.com right now. All right, let's get back to the show. So tell me, first of all, going in with a business plan is is not that common of what you'd think it would be. I mean, you went to business school, business plans, you're doing case studies and business plans, and that's how you're starting a business. But it, it's always, it, it might be surprising to people how often something will be launched and there is no business plan necessarily behind it. There's just a few people talking about an idea and they're like, all right, let's give it a try. Uh, but this sounds like it was very intentional. And was, the, was there thought around how Courageous was going to be a form of marketing and advertising that was going to be, you know, appear differently on Warner products, Warner Media products? Absolutely. And that was really at the core of why we felt so strongly about launching it. Um, because I, I do believe 
that uh, consumers nowadays, they don't really want to hear about a brand's product or service. Or if they do, it's secondary. What they really want to hear about is a brand's story. They want to know what does a brand stand for? What are their values? And by the way, do I share those those values with that brand? And maybe then I care about the product and the service that they provide and, and maybe I want to buy it. Uh, so, you know, I think that in sort of building Courageous, we wanted to set something up that could tell those brand stories in the best way possible. And so we hired brand journalists. We hired people who had that journalistic um, instinct, training, skill set, uh, and perhaps we're on the editorial side of, you know, another company, another entity beforehand. But now they could apply all of that to work that we were doing for brands. And they could find those stories that haven't been told uh, or tell those stories that have been told in a unique and different way, take a different angle. Um, and so we hired people who were really good at that. And, uh, and, and the stories are really the way to capture uh, someone's attention. Whether the brand is integrated in there, in some instances it's not. Uh, and if it is, it's very subtle, right? Um, but the idea really is to capture their attention in some way, represent the brand story, their values in some way, get uh, emotionally engage a consumer to connect with that brand in some way. And then you can talk about their product or their service after the fact. So I'd love to talk about this idea of brands and alignment. I want to talk about a campaign that you did with Hulu, which I find fascinating for a bunch of reasons. But I've I've always had a belief that brands can be, you know, you have these large marketing budgets and those budgets can be put towards some very interesting stories that wouldn't have been told otherwise. Uh, you, they can be involved in society and they can change minds. So I'd love for you to give us a little picture of what this Hulu campaign was and how it started out. So this is one of my all-time favorite campaigns that I have ever worked on. And it was for The Handmaid's Tale, which is uh, a show on Hulu. And this particular campaign was for the, the launch of their third season. And their first season, I, you're familiar with the show, I'm yeah. assuming. Yeah. And I'm Canadian, so, oh, so the there you go. <laughs> so uh, the first uh, show, the first series was really launched, uh, you know, with the Women's March as kind of the backdrop. And what they found, you know, as they kind of moved along uh, and we got to the third series was, you know, they felt that the point was made, but they wanted to, to more incentivize people to take action in some way. And that was kind of the brief that we got. And we knew that we wanted to come up with an idea for them that, um, you know, would, would achieve that. And so it was sort of also at the same time that we were starting to expand Courageous into other capabilities, experiential and events being one of them. And, and it just felt very natural to apply some of the special sauce, if you will, that Courageous has uh, in different ways and experiential being, I think, the, the one that we felt um, could work in the best way. And so as we were 
sort of contemplating, you know, this brief and their um, their sort of uh, request, we, you know, our guys kind of put on their brand journalism hats and they, um, they there was a line in the brief that was really interesting that said, um, history is written by those who tell it. And so knowing that, uh, you know, the guys went back and they they did some research and they came up with this insight that only 8% of statues in the United States are of women. Wow. And in New York City in particular, out of 150 statues, only five are of women. Which is what, like 3.5%? Mm-hmm. So they are, I could tell you, they are Golda Meir, Joan of Arc, Gertrude Stein, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Harriet Tubman. Those are the five. There are more statues of animals. I think it's like 26 or something. Oh, like significantly more. Mm-hmm. Than well, the there fact, are of women. The fact that you could name them on one hand like that. So there you go. Yeah. So we took that insight uh, and we decided to kind of blow it out. And we came up with this idea to have a one-day sort of pop-up event in New York City at the Flatiron District uh, and set up what we called statue parody for a day. So we created 140 statues of women and, uh, you know, put them up in the plaza. And uh, they were not of specific women. We decided to make them of mirrored material because the idea is that you could see yourself and you could help shape the future. That was the name of the campaign. And if you saw yourself, in theory, this could be you one day. Right. You could be the statue. And so we did this one-day event. It created a lot of buzz. Of course, Hulu loved it. Um, and we were so excited about you know the reaction in social, uh, you know, the attendance that we got that day in person. We, of course, shot it and then distributed it um, across all of our properties to give it legs beyond just that one-day event. It was supposed to just be that, and Hulu loved it so much that they said, please hold up that day, literally. They said, hold up. Please put all of these statues in storage and give us a proposal for what this would look like if we were to replicate it in multiple markets because by the way, the statistics are just as ridiculous in every major city in the United States. Yeah. So it's not just New York, yeah. Well, I even looked into it because I saw this and I, it's like one of those moments where you hear a stat and you're like, it can't be right. Like how can, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it just seems so outlandish that it would be 145 to five. In this day and age. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that you wouldn't have noticed it. Uh, that that no one would have like I hadn't heard it come up in conversation before, and so it's this insight that is such an obvious. It's looking at you in the face every day as you walk around New York, and it just doesn't come up in the conversation. I was trying to, I as I mentioned, I'm Canadian. I was trying to find out if what Canada's stats were on it. Mm. Now the thing is, is Canada doesn't have many statues in general. We uh, we're a fairly new country, mm. and we don't quite recognize our like political leaders in a similar fashion but i imagine it's the same so there just isn't no one has done the study on it but i did find that there is only there was a, a group that tried to find out how many female uh symbols or statues or, or icons that were created 
and I think they could only find 15. And they were looking. So, you know, Canada is still a really large country, and I can imagine if they could only find 15, the stats probably aren't that far off. The UK has a, an imbalance. It's not quite as drastic. 25% of statues are female, but then if you dig a little bit deeper, they're almost all either Queen Victoria mm. or they're like headless, uh, nameless statues in some like state of undress of female statues. So if you remove just Queen Victoria and only include ones with heads on them, the stats, it's, they almost don't exist, which was, wow. yeah. So I think this is likely not even just an American thing sure. in American cities. This is probably a global thing. So you can imagine the way that this single idea that comes out of Courageous Studios yes. for a TV show, how that can, on Hulu, how that can build, it's already a part of a movement and it can continue to the build more, even if you just think of the impact that it made on me on then going, I would have never looked at that before. Yeah. I never would have thought to look at that. Uh, and then now we're sharing it on this podcast and then more people are going to know. I just love the idea of a, a single idea that's fairly simple and the way that it can spread really quickly. So Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think that's sort of uh, another um, unique quality of Courageous because true to its name, you know, we want to be bold and courageous about the work that we do and uncovering, you know, these types of things uh, and doing purpose-driven work. A lot of brands are coming to us, whether they're specifically asking for it or indirectly asking for it, or we're sort of organically figuring out that that's an area that they should delve into. It's happening more and more. And I think that because it's something that the team really finds meaning in doing, it makes them feel good. Uh, so it's not just the quality of the work or the fact that they're doing a good job or they bring in money to the company or they're getting raises or accolades or winning awards, which by the way, we've won a ton of awards. I think it's 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 finding meaning in, in the work. And so for me, I say, bring it on. I want to do more and more of this. And, you know, we're we're doing a lot of domestic, but a lot of global work, too. So, you know, bring it on, UK and, and Canada. And, you know, we're happy to, to go do these kinds of things pretty much anywhere. Yeah. And how do you track this? You know, you can feel it in your voice. You can feel that, you know, this is something that you've been a part of since the beginning and it's doing great work and you're seeing signals that it's working, whether that's an award or a client coming back or staff being happy. Is there a way that you can measure against this business plan that you set out? Yeah. You know, you had to pitch this idea like this will be valuable in a bunch of different ways. Uh, what's your best way to track if you're succeeding or not? Sure. So the main thing I look at is the sort of percent of revenue that is being driven by branded content and the work that we do. It's an imperfect measure. Um, sometimes branded content is a part of a much bigger program where it's all within my team, so it's under my purview, but there could be other sponsorships or integrations into something the network is doing, whether it's on television, digital, events, things like that. Um, more and more, you know, we're building these 
these bigger programs that have a lot of different tentacles. But we look at the growth, right, year over year. Uh, how many of these programs are we doing? How many of them, um, you know, are driving the revenue that we are bringing into the company? What percent is that? Uh, renewal rate is a huge piece of that. Um, I'm proud to say we're at 45% renewal rate, which is like unheard of in this industry. Super high in branded content. Super high. Uh, and, and again, I think it's because of the quality of the work that we do, the type of work that we do, the fact that we're not trying to be everything to everyone. Uh, we're very deliberate about that. And, uh, and so when they come back, they come back for what they know us to be really good at and, uh, and it's paying off. Uh, we provide really, you know, white glove service. And that's something that um, I work really hard on and that my team, you know, is constantly improving in different ways. So uh, we want to make sure that the client feels really good about working with us, that it's easy to work with us, that they feel this sense of collaboration um, and ease of transaction, ease of, um, of partnership. We invite a lot of our clients to our shoots. So, you know, and we shoot globally. We shot in um, uh, 26 different countries just in 2019 wow. alone, uh, 50 plus international shoots. So, you know, we invite those clients to, to come with us on this journey and they literally sit next to the director and, you know, they watch what we do and the crew and they can provide input on the spot. And so uh, we create that relationship with them. And I think that translates to that renewal rate in a really big way. So I think, you know, we we measure all all of the different aspects of how we impact our business. Yeah. I see this thread that goes through your career around this idea of launching. I just, yes. I village these big monumental points in media's time frame. If you look, you know, you've got I village in, you know, the big rise and fall of 2000s. You have Web 2.0 happening then, the iPad, and then the rise of the content studio, uh, which is ushering in this new form of advertisers working with publishers in a really significant way. What do you think media looks like over the next few years and what big changes do you see on the horizon? What's the next monument that you see coming? Yeah, well, to address what you're saying, I think that it's always unpredictable too. And so I think that growing up in this industry, having seen how much it has changed, no one could have possibly expected the iPad to come out into the marketplace and what kind of um, you know revolution that would bring along with it of content consumption, the iPhone. Um, and so you know now we've got OTT, we've got, you know, all these different uh, devices and platforms. Social is another avenue we couldn't have possibly predicted that would come along. I think the what you have to be as a leader uh, in this industry um, is nimble. And uh, knowing that everything is so unpredictable and being excited about that, you know, and wanting to experiment and wanting to be on the front lines and, taking risks, you know, not being afraid of it. Uh, and sometimes they'll pay off and know that sometimes they won't. And that's okay. And I kind of talk to my team a lot about that, you know, that uh, I'd rather that they try something and fail uh, rather that than not try anything at all. So we are constantly, I have an R&D 
operational plan that I'm building right now because I want to operationalize it a little bit better, right? Like I want to put money against it. I want there to be more formalized structure to uh, this notion of we should be innovating, we should be experimenting. So I think that if I look to the future, that's what it's about for me. It's about trying different things, you know, trying different platforms, different technology. Uh, the answer is sometimes within and sometimes it's not. Sometimes you want to seek out these partners, these vendors, these technology companies, and you want to see what they're doing and it might inspire you. You might want to partner with them. You might want to build it yourself. Who knows? But it's about constantly seeking out what's out there and knowing sort of the beginning stages of, of, of what it might be that's kind of that next wave and just getting on, just get on, ride it, you know, again, you might fail, but that's okay. At least you're taking a chance. At least you're getting in on the ground floor. And I think that ultimately that's, that's paid off for me. And so that, that would be something that, um, you know, I would advice I would give to others and something that I plan to continue to do. Yeah. I think there's a couple pieces there, the idea of just moving forward and, and pushing through. And if you fail, you fail. I also like that you do take this planned approach to it as well. It, it doesn't seem random. It seems like uh, we're going to try something. We're going to look at what our expectations are of that plan. And then we'll know if we failed or not based on a plan we put forward. And I think that's a, it's a smart way to approach risk as well. Uh, and I think it's a smart way for us to approach the coming years of media. Uh, I've loved having you on the program. And I have to ask you for a favorite movie or a ah. favorite book because we do a book club and a movie club at press board and i'm always looking for recommendations so do you have a favorite book or movie well i would love to read more books i have three children which make it very difficult to have uh downtime to all do boys. that i have all boys, boys. uh-huh they are 13 11 and 7 so they keep me quite busy um, although I used to be a pretty uh, uh, avid reader. But I would say from a movie standpoint, something that comes to mind is recently, uh, you know, they when Creed came out into the movie theaters, I uh, had my, my boys sit down and my husband and I made them all watch uh, the Rocky series all the way from Rocky 1 to the end before we went to the movie theater to see Creed. Because they need to know the history. The context. They yeah. need to have the context, you, you know. Walk right and into the No, Creed. you can't. You can't not know yeah. the history yeah. of Rocky, you know. I hear you. And Rocky 4 being, in my opinion, the best of the Rockies, right? Man versus machine. I mean, I'm not going to make a comment on the best Rocky. I feel oh. like there are it's one of those it's like the best star wars it's mm -hmm. like the best of anything right mm -hmm. i think rocky four comes up a lot though yeah. you know it's like the it was one. yeah it was it was real you know man versus machine it right was, yeah yeah so the rocky movies rocky four specifically specifically and what did your kids think of the rocky series oh did they it hold loved up? it it held up they loved it well so they all are very sporty yeah they uh basketball is their number one sport every single one of them oh. uh, it's it's amazing um you would think they would like different things okay. and nope nope um so they all play basketball um in a really big way but any kind of like inspirational sports movie i think like rudy we saw they yeah. love that right. right hoosiers like all of these old time movies i love digging them up and watching them you know together because uh there's lessons there to yeah. be had and it's very motivational 
and you can take it outside of the context of sports, you know? So, uh, yeah, I just watched, what was the one with, um, uh, what is her name? Um, is it The Blind Side with, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, is that the name of the film? Yeah, I love that one. That was with, really good um, one. What is her name? Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock, yes. 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 That's a great movie. That was really good. I did a similar thing. I have two boys. I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. And I really wanted... Some of these movies don't hold up. Some of them do. So uh, Home Alone holds up. Oh, yeah. Uh, But I always loved Back to the Future. I loved Back to the Future. Love it. It was just, you know, Michael J. Fox. It was just... The DeLorean. Everything about... Everything about it. So... I really wanted to see, and I'm scared to show my kids these movies because I have such this nostalgic attachment to them. And I'm really putting myself out there on their trust of me as a curator of their entertainment That's in the right. future. So I sat them down. I'm like, okay, we're going to watch Back to the Future. And we're going to start at Back to the Future 1 and 2 and 3. Obviously, we're going to go through them in this way. And they love them. They love them. I was so happy. I was so happy. They stand the test of time. It stands the test of time. And there's some in Back to the Future 2, which is where they go to the future uh, quite a bit. There's some like really interesting tech in there. There's VR. Yeah. There's VR <laughs> in there. There's a hoverboard. And some of the stuff still doesn't exist. Remember, these films were 1980s. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. it was like 1987 was right. Back to the Future 2. And I'm watching it. And I'm like, okay, come on. We've had 20 some years. We should be able to. Can we not yet have a hoverboard? Like a real hoverboard know, like right? this one? Like, we barely got VR, and they were already talking about it so long ago. But I'm glad that Rocky holds up. Rocky I'm, holds up. I'm Back, glad to, the Back to the Future holds up. Yeah. What is it, 121 gigawatts? What, what's the... Oh, I can't remember the yeah, exact number. Yeah, I can't remember I the number. I just but... watched them. All right, same. Yeah, that's good. Uh, there's a flux capacity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, that's right. Uh, well, I'm glad that those hold up. And I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thanks I'm for having me. I'm glad that you've had this career path that led you to this podcast today. And thank you so much me for too. sharing your story. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning into the Science of Storytelling. Don't forget to leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. We have a ton more episodes coming up this season with some absolutely amazing guests. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss a single one. See you next time.